Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. Now, they used to say that economists are people who were good with numbers, but didn't have the personality to be accountants. It sounds like a joke against accountants, but if you think about it, it's even ruder about economists. The dismal science, they call it, and that's when they're being polite. Others would say it wasn't a science at all, just dismal. Maybe that's why, historically, you haven't seen so many women going into economics. Last year, less than 20% of economics undergraduates in the UK were women. The numbers for the US are similar, and they shrink as you proceed through academia. Only 14% of full economics professors in the US are women, and that is an all-time high. But if you look outside the universities, women economists are starting to punch well above their weight. If you look around, several of the world's biggest banks now have female chief economists. We also have female chief economists at the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the Rich Countries Club, the OECD, and the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development. We decided to celebrate the rising tide of women in economics this week at Bloomberg with a special event in London, talking about everything that matters in the global economy with two women at the very top of the economics game. Janet Henry, the global chief economist for HSBC, and Claire Lombardelli, who's the chief economic advisor to the Treasury and also runs the entire economic service for the UK government. We're going to play you most of that conversation in this week's podcast. But first, I thought we should check in on events in Sintra, which is the royal fancy hilltop resort that the European Central Bank brings everyone to every year to think about monetary policy and the global economy. And this one is special because not only is it the 20-year anniversary of the euro, the single European currency, but it's going to be the last forum presided over by Mario Draghi, the president of the European Central Bank, who will be leaving office at the end of October. Uh, Paul Gordon runs our central bank coverage in Europe out of our Frankfurt office, and he's been at the Sintra conference this week. Paul, uh, thanks for joining me. I know there's lots uh, going on. But what's what's the mood like at Sintra? I know that you're an old hand at these things. <laughs> yes, I mean, you have to remember it's an academic retreat and there's some quite interesting research papers and themes to deal with. But what everyone really wants to talk about is what is the ECB going to be doing in the near future? And uh, Mario Draghi gave people plenty to talk about in his opening remarks on uh, the first day of the conference, uh, saying that... Uh, If the economic outlook, particularly inflation, does not improve, additional stimulus will be needed. Now, that's quite a low bar. He didn't say the economy has to deteriorate. He just has to say uh, it it doesn't improve. Uh, And that got people thinking about what he's going to do. Draghi himself said everything's on the table. Interest rate cuts, specifically a resumption of quantitative easing and any other measures that might be needed. But uh, the governing council members uh, and the officials who we managed to speak to inside the room clearly gave us the sense that they're expecting if anything happens, it's going to be an interest rate cut. Uh, That will be the first step and it could come quite soon. And reminding people that that's a cut from an already negative rate, which we had previously not had. We we had sort of thought it couldn't go much lower. 
Yes, I mean, the rate, uh, the deposit rate, which is the key rate, is minus 0.4%. Now, uh, nobody thinks that's the, the lower bound, what used to be called the zero lower bound, but we've broken through that, of course. Uh, in Switzerland, for example, you're at minus 0.75%. But there's probably not that much room to cut uh, before banks start complaining so much about their squeezed profitability that they stop lending to the real economy, to companies and households. Now, there is uh, a, a fudge around that, and it's one that Mario Dr has also mentioned that is uh, supposedly uh, known as tiering but what it is is effectively exempting banks from some of the charge on their deposits that's a contentious point within the governing council some people think it's not necessary but it is generally accepted it would allow the ECB to keep rates lower for longer but again not necessarily much lower it's possible we will lose some of our audience if we go further into the tiering uh, analysis. But I think if we sort of step back and just think about uh, the sort of big picture on this, I mean, you've got Mario Draghi, who at least is credited with saving the euro. He got the European Central Bank to create instruments that didn't exist before for responding to the sovereign debt crisis. And he's consistently had to drag other people on the governing council along when he's wanted to do more to help the eurozone economy. Was this him in his speech this this year? Was he trying once again to to push the the governing council in a way that they didn't necessarily want to go, and maybe even lock in his successor? Because technically, he's not in charge for very much longer. He might not be around for most of this loosening that he's talking about. Yes, he's definitely constrained his successor, whoever that may turn out to be. That was already the case because the governing council has pledged to keep interest rates at current levels at least until the second half of next year. But he may well have locked his successor into uh, lower rates for a longer time as well. It's entirely feasible that his successor is part of that decision, of course, that already sits on the governing council. That decision will be taken eventually by uh, the uh, European Union leaders sometime over the coming weeks, possibly even over the coming months. But this is uh, potentially something of a last hurrah. You're right, for Mario Draghi. He will never raise interest rates. He'll be the first ECB president never to have raised interest rates and, as president. And uh, that is uh, something that no doubt is weighing on him. Well, although, funnily enough, of course, the first thing he did when he came in as president was reverse the recent increase of his predecessor, uh, Jean-Claude Trichet. So I guess you never can completely lock your successor into anything. I wonder if it will be the last Trump tweet he gets, because very soon after the speech, we had a couple of tweets from the American president uh, talking about the markets, responding to unfair comments by Mario Draghi, and that this was part of a uh, continual uh, policy of other countries talking down their currencies, making them more competitive against US producers. Did that come as a... How did people respond to that that tweet uh, It circulated quite quickly within the room. Uh, It certainly raised some eyebrows here at the ECB. Uh, There was no initially uh, official reaction to that at all, although we did speak to the uh, former chief economist, Peter Pratt, uh, on TV, who said that this is the kind of thing, uh, this is misguided, I forget his exact words, but he was (laughs) saying this is not what this was about. This is not about lowering the euro, weakening the euro. This is the ECB doing what it has to do for its own economy, and that's perfectly reasonable. Well, if nothing else, President Trump is getting global exchange rate policy back into the headlines. I guess as economists, we should be pleased. Uh, Paul Gordon, thank you very much for joining us. Enjoy Sintra. Thank you. We had a similar event for International Women's Day in New York. 
thinking about the rising tide of women in economics, but also just talking about what matters in the global economy with senior women economists. And it's one of the most kind of fun conversations I've had this year. So I'm looking, looking forward uh, to this one. If I think back then, I think Christine Lagarde, the head of the International Monetary Fund, had just described the situation in the global economy as precarious. We were talking about the so-called pivot uh, or U-turn, depending on how you look at it, by the US central bank and thinking about what that might mean in terms of not having further rate rises. Things have moved on a long way since March. We've had a complete change in expectations around Fed policy. Uh, we've had today big shift or a signal of a big shift in European Central Bank policy. Janet, would you say the risks of a recession have materially increased in the last few months or have we just talked ourselves into a much gloomier place? Um, it's, it's certainly been dramatic. I mean, last September, I think the markets were pricing in three more Fed increases. And now they're forecasting, basically pricing in three rate cuts by early 2020. So the move has been very, very swift. Uh, but we are now in this world, and I think it was probably best summed up by um, Benoit Coure from the ECB board, I think it was yesterday or the day before, he made the comment on, on the yield curve, and it's clearly the financial markets see something that we don't. You don't ignore a signal like that but nor do you blindly follow it. And that's why, you know, I think the message from the ECB today was, yeah, let's talk about the instruments, let's persuade everyone, we've got a whole raft of measures we can deliver if necessary, um, but we, we will be ready to act if we need to, but there is this disconnect between what's in the data um, and the actual available uh, in, in the markets and what's in the actual data at the moment, which is still consistent with a general slowdown compared with 2017 and then 2018, but is not quite in recessionary territory yet. Employment's still growing. Even in the euro area, wage growth is at a 10-year high. Payrolls are still growing in the US. So, yeah, the risk is that it becomes self-fulfilling. We've seen brief periods of the inverted yield curve over the last six months or so, and that's always triggered this, this conversation. I like the way John Orth has put it, actually, in a, in a column this week. He said, we shouldn't be trying to sort of explain this away. You know, that bond markets might be, may be behaving as if they're bracing themselves for something terrible to happen because traders are indeed scared that something terrible is going to happen. And if you look at some of those kind of leading indicators that people talk about in the US, I think it's you know trucking or the Empire State Manufacturing Survey. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, what's your, what's your favorite uh, leading indicator of recession and which way is it pointing? Well, I think what we've got at the moment is a very clear industrial recession. You know, we've had it really in different parts of the world since the middle of 2018. You know, it was led by Europe and led by Germany. You had all sorts of factors in the industrial sector related to the auto sector in particular, change in vehicle licensing. You know, Italy was in recession in the second half of last year. Germany avoided recession by the narrowest of margins. Then it looked like things were stabilizing to some degree. But yeah, the ZEW, which is a survey of financial analysts, came out this morning. It was shockingly bad. The Empire Survey, New York State, not really representative of the whole of the United States, but at these kind of levels. But remember, in most economies, particularly somewhere like the United States, 70% of the economy is consumer spending. So you can have a disconnect between this extreme weakness in the industrial sector, which is pretty much in recession, from services for a while, 
But the more that industry remains in a recession, if that starts to impact the labor market, then if construction gets hit by the labor market, that impacts on consumer spending, and then the slowdown in consumer spending actually starts to follow. So yeah, industry, there is no question, there's very little sign of turnaround. Um, but for now, the consumer side is okay. And I think, as you say, where, where markets are scared, they're scared that you know, the rest of the economy will follow. We know that investment is not going to pick up in a world where we've got these trade tensions persistently um, influencing um, the outlook for the global economy in a negative way. Now, Claire, you're very kind to come along today because it is a week when the Monetary Policy Committee for the UK is meeting. And in our great kind of British colonial phrase, that means you're in perda. So you can't talk about the sort of short-run uh, issues around monetary policy. But if you look at the UK, even independent of Brexit, I was struck by one of our UK economists saying that the case for, for holding policy and just generally the case for concern around um, the economy you know, has increased independent of what's gone on in Brexit in the last few months. I mean, that the, the, the material risks to the UK economy have gone up in the last few months. Do you think that's right? Well, I think it's, I mean, it's very hard to distinguish or to separate out what's going on in the UK economy from Brexit. But, I mean, I do think the impact of these global, uh, the global movements that we've seen on the UK are also having, a, having an effect. And you can't separate that. I mean, we are an open, a small open economy. We are very exposed to that. So to an extent that that is an additional risk, that is definitely uh, the case that the concern globally will translate into one in the UK. And as Janet says, I mean, again, consumption plays an important role in the UK as it does in, in the US, and that has continued to hold up reasonably well. Uh, but the recent data that we saw, I mean, actually, the data in Q1 was, was strong, but when you look at that, a lot of that was around inventories and other things we might think to be short term. So I think, again, in the same way it is in the global position, for the UK, the position is quite subdued. And if, when you're thinking about it, I mean, looking at it as an economist, but also when you have to be, you know, thinking about the fiscal outlook for the UK, what the planning framework is going to be for the next few years. A year or so ago, we might have said we still had quite a long way to run in this economic cycle. Do we, do we conclude from the last year that actually there's a good chance that, this is, that we've got less time than we thought? Or is this just a, a more, feels more like a sort of temporary slowdown? We shouldn't change our fundamental view of the recovery. I mean, if you look at the actually the fiscal um, numbers, you, you wouldn't necessarily change. I mean, the large change that, uh, as, as people know, our, our forecasting is done sort of by an independent body, the Office of Budget Responsibility. And actually, the large change they made on the fiscal forecast was um, towards the end that was last year in, in the budget last year, when actually they recognised that sort of systematically um, our fiscal receipts have been coming in higher than they'd, they'd previously thought. And so that was the point at which they made a large adjustment. So in a sense, quite separate from these uh, trends that we're talking about. I mean, in part, that was basically just looking at the backward data and what had actually happened and seeing that the forecasts that they've been running till then were not actually in line with, with the outturns of what we saw. Um, so then I feel they've moved to a more central place, which is actually, you know, particularly on the fiscal side, the position to continue to be you know, reasonably strong. Have you, I mean, Janet, have you changed your view of the of the cycle or where we might be in it as the, on the basis of the last few months? Uh, no, no, we haven't. <laughs> we know from uh, Matt that we're absolutely brilliant at forecasting, so well, we should... Uh... Well, we are, but actually, in July, this US expansion becomes the longest mm. in the post-war period. It goes just over 10 years, uh, which was the, the, the previous longest throughout the 1990s. 
And, you know, we had always expected a slowdown in growth. Um, and we've long, for as long as we've been forecasting 2020, we've had interest rate cuts in our profile. It's just that, yeah, in the course of the last couple of months, we've become the hawks in the room uh, because suddenly everyone's forecasting a rate cut in July. So I think it's just the, the balance of risks has materially shifted and it's already impacting on sentiment and on some of the, now some of the industrial indicators, it looks like maybe the auto sector is in even worse shape. The, the tech sector, the semiconductor still looks a bit weak. And uh, as I say, any evidence of any investment pickup um, is more likely to continue to be constrained. So it's more about, no, we haven't changed our central profile, but the risks around it are, have certainly become much more skewed to the downside. We've seen, obviously, populism dominating a lot of the political debate uh, in the US, across Europe, and clearly in the UK. Um, I sometimes wonder whether there, there could there'll be risks in if we have a similar response to the next crisis, um, which is fundamentally driven by quantitative easing as well as maybe some fiscal policy. You know, does that then sow the seeds for another populist backlash? Because people do associate, rightly or wrongly, people think the printing of money to push up asset prices is helping people who own assets, which is wealthy people, uh, at the expense of, or at least expense of increasing inequality. Do, we, do you think central banks should be wary of that, sort of the political impact of those kind of tools? I think the difficulty with central banks in the last downswing was clearly that they were overburdened, you know, we could sometimes be forgiven for thinking that the only thing that causes growth is monetary policy, cutting interest rates and buying assets, uh, which arguably those rise in asset prices contributed to income inequality, well, wealth inequality, not so much um, income um, inequality. So I think, you know, we need to think about what actually generates growth. And I think this is, again, part of the message that we were getting from Mario Draghi in his, in his Sintra speech. It was yes. Um, we've, we've got this array of instruments we can deliver. We can do more quantitative easing. We can cut interest rates more negative. Um, but we still need to see the political integration. We still need to see a fiscal union. We still need to see a banking union and a capital markets union. And perhaps if governments didn't overburden central banks to the same degree, um, then we could get something that's more supportive for, for growth um, longer term. But I think central banks um, will protect... Um, as much as their independence and their political neutrality as, as they possibly can. We shall see who the next uh, Bank of England governor is, who, whether, how strongly he defends that. I mean, Claire, you're in a, uh, a really interesting position because we're, we're sort of used to, you know, Bloomberg, the sort of market economist, with no uh, offence to Janet Henry, who's at the top <laughs> of this the tree. Um, but, you know, we have a, a lot of people who are talking about how macro mm -hmm. relates to markets. Um, but the economists who work for you are actually shaping the way policymakers think about economics mm -hmm. and the sort of models they have in their heads when they're thinking about policy. There's a lot of criticism since the crisis of the, the models that people used being faulty mm -hmm. um, and leading us astray. How much do you think we've fixed that? You know, right on, on the ground level, how much mm -hmm. are you working to kind of broaden people's minds? I mean, look, it's very fashionable, I think, these days to blame economists for all sorts of things. 
Uh, and some of the criticisms of the economics profession are fair, and an awful lot of them, I think, are, are misplaced, and it's important to sort of distinguish between the two. I mean, there are things we can and should do better. I mean, one of the things you sort of alluded to there, I think, is around the diversity of the profession. And it's certainly the case that we are not a profession that's as diverse as um, we should be. You know, if you, if you look at... Um, Economists, and you think about what people think of when they think of economists, they don't generally tend to think of a representative group across society. I mean, it is important that we have a more diverse bunch of people doing this, this discipline, partly because it has quite a big impact on people's lives. I mean, economics has a disproportionate impact, and economists have a disproportionate impact on, on uh, outcomes for people. And there's quite a lot of evidence of we all know that diversity correlates to performance. I mean, we just saw that in the, in the charts that you, um, you showed. I mean, one of the things you've got to think about if you're trying to address this, and I know this is sort of badged as a, a sort of rising tide of women in economics, though we need to be clear, economics is not very diverse on any other factors either, you know, we have terrible outcomes in terms of the number of black and Asian eth um, ethnic minority people in the profession. You know, we also have very terrible, if you look at the sort of socioeconomic background, you look at where we're all based. I mean, most economists work in London, live, live in London, the southeast, or in some other globalized city. You know, it, it's not surprising then that people load the charge at us that we're a bit out of touch with what's going on. And it's particularly important, I think, for the government economic service, because the work that we do, like you say, some of it is, you know, sort of macroeconomic issues we've talked about today. Some of it actually is doing things like looking at how individual health programs affect people on the ground in certain regions and things like that. So actually, it's really, um, really important. I mean, one of the worrying things you've got to look at is what is the pipeline? So it's very good that there's been lots of high-profile appointments of, of uh, senior women to high-profile economics jobs, you know, chief economists here, there, and, and, and all over. But actually, when you look at who is studying economics, those numbers are not moving at all. About a third of economics students, uh, undergrad, are women. I mean, actually, over the last 10 years, that's not increased. In fact, it's actually going down slightly at the moment. And that suggests actually quite a worrying trend in terms of the pipeline of where this is going. You know, if you look at that then throughout the academic spectrum, you again have it progressing up. I mean, it's interesting when you look at why. So some people would argue that, well, it's about maths. Right? Women don't study maths, or maths puts them off, or whatever, and somehow that's a barrier. I mean, leaving aside the slightly offensive suggestion that women uh, can't, can't do maths or choose not to, it's quite interesting if you control for that. If you look at the people who study A-level maths, Fewer, fewer women that study A-level maths then go on to do economics. They're far more likely to go on to do medicine, for example, than, than their male counterparts. Um, it's interesting if you look at the proportion of, of, of subjects that women study, economics has the third lowest proportion of women. There are more women as a proportion studying maths. There are more women as a, study, as a proportion studying physics. But still, economics comes out really badly. And you have to sort of think, well, what, what do we need to do about that? I mean, personally, I think we have an image problem. As economists, I think we talk in a language that is really exclusive, that enables people to sort of switch off and be bored. You know, we use terminology that, you know, we think we're being precise and accurate. And that is, of course, really, really important. It's also very hard to get your message across if you do that. We, we don't tend to focus on the things and talk about the things people care about. If you look at the top um, universities in the UK, if you look at the top journals in, in economics and what people are publishing on, it's not necessarily those issues that are the really exciting things we work on, you know, climate change, income distribution, you know, health outcomes, development, those are the things that really affect people's lives. If you actually look at what a lot of economists are studying, it's not necessarily that what economists are talking about, it's not necessarily that. So I think there's quite a lot we need to do to make us make it more diverse and to go out and sort of 
make clear to people that actually there is a place for them in economics. Even when you look at us as a profession now, you may not see people that look like you, but actually there is a place for you, but you have to go out and drag people in. One of the things we're doing in the government for the first time in September, and it's, you know, it's, it's new and it's different, is we're taking apprentices, apprentices in economics for the first time. So people will be coming without any economics training before and studying and working at the same time. It's very interesting. We're taking 75 people in September. We've advertised this through a completely different way than ever before. So it's all been done on social media. We did an awful lot about checking the language we're using. We've got a completely different cohort of people coming. Nearly half the people coming are women. Over a third are, you know, not white. It's quite different to what we've seen before. I mean, it's a bit of an experiment. We'll see. But I do think it's incumbent on all of us in the profession to try and reach out a bit and try and change this perception that somehow economics is about talking about, you know, with all due respect, money and stock markets and all of that. I mean, it, it is about that, but it's also about talking about the things that really affect people, you know, health outcomes, welfare, regional balances, all that sort of stuff. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, it's because we do, we have been saying how wonderful that the chief global economist of HSBC is a woman and several other international major banks currently have a female chief economist and the International Monetary Fund, uh, World Bank, all of these things. But I mean, now Claire let me think that that's a bad thing because it's further <laughs> emphasizing that if it, it, we've now got these role models who are all talking about the sort of the highfalutin It, it uh, is, but I suppose where, where you don't have the role models is actually at universities. Mm -hmm. That's where is the worst instance of women. I mean, actually, of my global economics team at HSBC, we're about a third women. Mm -hmm. And in London, we're half and half. But in, in public sector, there are now a lot more women economists. But in academia, it's less than 10%. Yeah. Now, I, I was fortunate. Uh, in my, my undergraduate, we had um, a very impressive um, female <laughs> economist. And, yeah, if you don't mm. see people that look and sound like you and speak a language that you speak, um, why would you want to be interested mm. by that? And I was, I was looking at the numbers. In the U.S., the, it's 14% of full economics professors in American universities are women. And that's actually an all-time high. And there's yeah. quite a lot of concern because of the way the pipeline has changed mm -hmm. with people, fewer PhDs, um, that that's going to be an all-time high for quite a long time because it's going to go down from, from here. But I also, I like Claire's point about uh, measuring, thing, measuring the things that people care about. Mm -hmm. I was very struck when I was working on the Inclusive Growth Commission mm -hmm. with cities that they often had, they just didn't have data for even measuring whether they were producing the right kind of jobs in their region or their city that they wanted to or that they thought they were. Um, and you, wouldn't, you didn't get a lot of the relevant data in a form that they could use in a time that they could use it. So I guess that comes down to it as well. It does seem to me that in a way that gender inequality is an, easier, is an easier thing to address yeah. than the social diversity. Because the social diversity, you're also dealing with the consequences of a very uneven education system mm -hmm. in every country. And we can often, I feel like, the diversity agenda, when it's only focused on women, means that you're desperately competing to get a small number of women who've all had this fantastic, who, are, who may in fact be very privileged mm -hmm. yes. and have had a very similar social background to the people they're joining, and they may not be offering the diversity. So how, I mean... You talked about the apprenticeships, but how else can we address it? No, I mean, I, I agree. It's a real um, challenge. But I think some of this is actually about talking to people in a language they understand. Well, you know, when I go to schools and you actually talk about economics and what you do, people are more excited about the content of the subject than pretty much any other subject, right? Because people are understandably passionate about the big issues that face society and wanting to change them. And actually, that's what economists do. 
we just need to explain that's what we do rather than always talk in a way that makes it sound like we're doing something that's from a different planet. So I think there's an element of that. There's an element of um, thinking about the sort of the way in which we advertise jobs and we recruit, and there's quite a lot of, frankly, um, bias, some conscious, some unconscious in that. You know, we've moved away in the civil service. We used to we used to be very focused on going and having an interview with some, you know, very articulate, highly educated person. Now, some people feel more comfortable in that environment than others. You know, a lot of people who are 21 do not feel confident going into a room where they're asked to sort of debate like some kind of Oxford debating club with someone who's, you know, four or five years older than them. And actually things like that are barriers that we just, it wasn't intentional. We just hadn't really thought about it that way. And it's only when we looked at it and some people came in and said to us, have you thought about what this feels like if you're 21 and applying and you don't know anyone who's applied, you know, you might not have in your family or extended network, you might not know many people in these sorts of jobs. So a lot of things like that, but also you've just got to go out there and sort of actively try and pull people in. I mean, you know, who knows where we'll get to with our apprenticeship scheme, but that's been one way, you know, like I say, we've done it all through Snapchat. I mean, I have to admit, I don't really understand Snapchat. I know, <laughs> know what it is, but we've I'm had sure everybody other, here could teach you. I, perhaps. Um, but, you know, I, we've had other, other people, um, we basically sort of outsourced it to a set of people who understand how to do this better than, than, than we did, and it's had some good results. But look, it's a small step, and I think it's incumbent on all of us in the profession, frankly, to go out and do that, because the only way we're going to get any better at this, and I think unless we do... There is a legitimacy that we are missing out on, really, because how can we really justify going around and having this big influence on people and public policy and all of that when actually we're not representative at all? So I do think you have to do quite practical things like that. Think about, actually, you know, what is the offer you're making and how does it sound to the people you're trying to convince? Well, I can say uh, the good news is, since the results of the Conservative leadership second round have, have come through, um, that however undiverse uh, economics is, it's still a great deal more diverse than the <laughs> remaining five candidates, only one of whom was state school educated, four of whom went to Oxford, uh, and I think two actually were at the same college and indeed both at Eton. So uh, it, we won't be looking for diversity, and if you, probably you don't want to be leader of the Conservative Party, but I wouldn't recommend it from diversity grounds. <laughs> um, uh, thank you very much to both of you. I think we have managed to cover quite a lot of ground in thought-provoking way and I look forward to having more conversations like this but thank you to everybody for coming. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on-the-ground insight into the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review our show so it can reach more listeners. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. It's that simple. You can also find me on at my Stephanomics. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson with assistance from David Beattie, Mike Simpson and Agatha Cantrell. And the Women in Economics event would not have happened without Matt Winkler, Sasha Graf and Tammy Dyke. Our executive producer is Scott Lamman. Special thanks to Janet Henry, Claire Lombardelli and Paul Gordon. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.